When she came into my life looking for an apartment, it was not quite love at first sight, but close enough. I was smitten. From there, I invited her into my life. She had all the qualities I always fell for. Smart, sensitive, funny, caring, physically attractive, emotionally unavailable. This is what I loved. She had all the basics and she had something more. A quirkiness, an artistic ability, and a completely screwed up past. Her father was the leader of a Buddhist cult. He left his family because, as he said, how can you concentrate on the needs of the few over the needs of the many? Her mother was a psychic who consulted psychic mediums and spiritual muckety-mucks in Canada, where she lived and where my new roommate was from. My new roommate also had a, another problem, which is that she was bulimic. Her artwork reflected this, this darkness inside and this purging, and I didn't realize what I was looking at until I found out later about the bulimia. Her smiles covered her trauma. She knew that I loved her. She strung me along. I let her. This was perfection. I was a puppy dog. I would do anything for her. I brought her an umbrella in the rain when she was at work and felt really, really stupid when she looked at me quizzically amongst her friends, colleagues, and just sort of accepted it with disdain, perhaps embarrassment, perhaps embarrassment for me. And I walked home and got drenched all alone. And this was perfect. I knew I could win her over. I could win her with kindness, with affection. I could, I could show her that I was worth her time. Maybe not attractive to her in the ways she wanted, but, but in the ways that I've got to work with. After a few months, I got a call from a mental hospital. She had been admitted, and I was the only one she would talk to. So I went there, I took a cab, and I saw her there in this sort of detention center amongst criminals who were handcuffed to radiators and, you know, craziness. The craziness you would expect from a New York City mental health holding pen, for lack of a better term. And I went and I saw her, and she had her own little room. She was refusing to eat. She was almost catatonic. She wasn't talking to me. I was talking to her. I tried to give her her tray of food, and she, she flung it like a child. She was throwing a tantrum. Eventually, don't recall if it was that night or the next day, got her to calm down, and... We talked. They were going to hold her there for evaluation. They were going to actually move her to uh, a larger, proper mental facility. And they held her there. But that night, that, that initial night, I went home and I, uh, I called her mother. 
And I said, uh, your daughter is, uh, is in a mental facility here and she needs your help. And her mother said very quickly, very hurriedly, Oh, okay. I will, uh, I'll take that in con- into consideration and, uh, thank you for calling. Click. Click. I called her back. I was angry. I said, ma'am, your daughter is in a mental hospital in one of the biggest cities in the world, New York City, in a foreign country. You need to get here now. And she said, oh, okay, okay. Well, I will, uh, I'll consult with my spiritual advisor and, and get back to you. Yeah, well, do what you got to do, ma'am. But, I mean, you can, and I told her, you can stay here. You can stay in her room. Just get here. I'll pick you up at the airport. Whatever you need. And so she consulted her advisor, and an advisor basically, thankfully, said, What are you, crazy? Go. (laughs) This is your daughter. So she came. And she and I met with her daughter, my roommate. And by this point, she had created a bond or a friendship with an awkward, older critter of a man. Uh, who she would make faces with behind our backs. And they would have cute little smirks, like a cute little private joke that they were sharing. And uh, eventually the doctors released her into my custody, which I accepted. And uh, her mom's response was to immediately bring her to a psychic medium in New York. Uh, as a form of therapy. And I listened to that audio tape of that session, and uh, this woman puts on a British voice, and she says a bunch of generalities about her problem, and everything's fixed. Well, her mom goes back to her homeland, and she forges on in New York. She fairly immediately moves out, and therefore out of my custody, and into an apartment supplied by this man she had met in the mental hospital, who it turns out is an attorney who frequently checks himself in for depression. Perhaps she related to him on this level, for she was herself admitted as being suicidal. He gave her an apartment. He gave her a job. And when I made the joke-not-joke joke one night before going to see a Broadway performance of Ivanov, that who knows what else he's giving her. This is a mistake. I mean, this is not what you do (laughs) to get better. Uh, Don't trust this. She got angry, and that pretty much destroyed whatever relationship we had. While she was in the hospital, I actually made it a point to go see a psychologist friend of mine. For a number of sessions to make sure that I wasn't playing the knight in shining armor, that I was doing everything on the up and up, because I was concerned about that. But going to see a therapist was part of the game. Of course I was being a knight in shining armor. Of course I wanted to win her over. This was perfect. Part of the reason I fell for her so hard is because she was, in many ways, a spitting image of... Uh, 
the girl from high school, who I, if, if I believed in soulmates, would have sworn was mine. She was a psychic. Her mom was a psychic. Her dad was out of her life. She had a crazy life. She ended up meeting her dad for the first time with her brother on a TV talk show. Even in high school, she was a very sensual, sexual person. And uh, I predicted one day she would end up in porn while she ended up in an adjacent profession. And uh, she was also kind of dishonest, but also hugely creative, really funny, really open, an energetic spirit, a positive one in at least the surface ways, and manipulative, and did anything to keep me attracted to her because she knew I was. That was no secret. And the things she did uh, to me were pretty terrible and should have been deal breakers, uh, but they weren't. They were only temporary deal breakers. I always went back because this was perfect. And I look at the girls and women in between these two that I've been attracted to, and they share uh, similar characteristics. There's a screwed-upness there. There's all the things that you would expect from emotional unavailability. And so I could go through life and I could say, why me, why me? And I did, you know, especially in high school and I'm sure in college. Uh, It was all about why me, why me? And then eventually one day you wake up and you realize, um, this is me. This is my fault. If you want to say there's a fault there, Um, it's the way that I am. This is perfect. All of these relationships are perfect because they reconfirm to me who I believe myself to be. I believe I'm unworthy of love. I believe relationships are scary. I'm the one who's emotionally unavailable. How dare I put this on them? You see, and this is what we do, and we call this love. We call this whole rigmarole of fortifying our self-identity through another, this complete dysfunction, love. And as you're listening to this, replace me with you. Think about your own loves in your own life. And of course, your life is going to be different. You're not going to have the same uh, exact problems necessarily. Um, But I'm just saying, go through what you've considered to be love, and if it's completely dysfunctional, look at why. Deconstruct yourself. Ask yourself why it is that this is acceptable. And don't ask with a judgment. Don't ask because you want to condemn yourself or laud yourself or condemn another or laud another. Just simply inquire as if you're, as if you're a scientist. I mean, just observe these movements in you. Why are you the way you are? Why do you define these undefinable things such as love the way you do or, frankly, at all? And so for me, I looked and I said, you know, it's so easy to see why why my former roommate was so screwed up. I mean, Buddhist cult leader dad... Uh, aloof, crazy, psychic mom who ironically 
recommended that I read a Jungian-style book about owning your shadow, which she clearly did not. She was not very fit. Being a mother, didn't seem comfortable with it. And here's this, this poor girl, this precious, talented, outgoing, young lass trying to make her way in life. That's all. You know, trying to make her way through the confusion of of bad parents. And, and actually, uh, when you think about what that must be like, if you can connect with that emotionally, I mean, how tough is that for her? What a life. And the same thing with the girl from high school, who was also a new girl in town when I met her. I mean, how hard, how difficult is it when you don't know your father, your mom is a psychic. Her mom was not living in even in the same part of the country, let alone the state. She was living with another relative who was in an abusive situation with her husband. The fact that these women made it out alive didn't end up junkies or, you know, bullies or just any of that is is pretty amazing. And and, and understandable, but what was, I couldn't understand me. And in fact, it took me well into adulthood to even look at me because I couldn't get past the fact of who I saw myself as. That was the answer. I'm just not worth it. So why did I feel that way? Why did I always go for emotionally unavailable women? Well, because I'm emotionally unavailable. Well, why am I unemotion- emotionally unavailable? Well, certainly the things that uh, the high school gal did were scarring in a way. Uh, Certainly made me gun-shy, as it were. But deeper than that, you know, why, why was I even with her? Why did I let her do things that were shocking and uncomfortable and numbing? Uh, You know, why did I let her manipulate me? Well, because, again, that's what allows you to remain as you see yourself. That's, that's one answer. And certainly, one reason that it is so difficult to change in life is that we are comfortable with who we are, even if who we are completely sucks. Even if it's negative, even if it's hard, it's what we know. We don't know that we can or should. or We don't know anything about the better what it is to feel better, what it is to feel joy. So however we view ourselves, even if it leads to a miserable existence, that's what we know. And knowledge of ourselves makes us feel pseudo-comfortable, comfortable enough. And that's one problem. The other problem and the, the overarching problem that leads to that misery is how you see your parents interacting with each other. And so I looked at that. I looked at how my parents interacted with each other. I looked at how they uh, made me feel about me early on and then later in life. And um, they argued a lot. My dad was sort of a rageaholic. He would slam things around. He would never abuse us. Uh, He would verbally assault my mother. And I used to be the knight in shining armor to my mother when I was a very young boy. And I would console her when she would cry. She would run to her bedroom and cry. And then I would go out and yell at my dad, and my dad would let me, thankfully. Um, 
He never answered that with abuse, so I got away with being the knight in shining armor. So that's kind of who I became early on to protect my mother from my father. There are other things. I was molested, uh, arguably twice. Uh, The second time, definitely. The first time was, um, I don't remember how old I was, but it was potty training years, and uh, the babysitter's daughter, um, who was still a young girl, but certainly older than me, had me kiss down the length of her body and wanted me to kiss her genitals and her mom came into the bedroom and saw this happening and grabbed her by the arm and lifted her up into the air and started spanking her and yelling at her. And, um, I just sat there bewildered and started crying and then it was nap time. And I remember this (laughs) quite vividly. Uh, so does that count as molestation? I mean, it's certainly a sexualization of sorts. Uh, but really, when I was around seven or eight, uh, the downstairs neighbor, who was an adult male, plied the local kids with candy and cheap toys, and they all thought he was creepy, and I felt bad, knight in shining armor and all, and so I befriended him, and uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> so you you look at these things, and you go, okay, these are the cocktail of who I am, you know? But then if you look deeper, if you examine... Why was this guy molesting me? Uh, Likely, he was molested as a child, which is not an excuse. It just, it speaks to an obvious pattern, you know. I mean, how awful must his childhood have been to become a child molester? And the same thing for this girl, you know. Her father uh, was completely creepy to both me and my sister. Even at like whatever I was, three or four years old, he was completely creepy to me. And so if I had to take an educated guess, I'd say he was sexually abusing her and she was acting it out on me. If I look at my parents and I think about what do I know about their childhoods? And I think about my crazy, at this point in life anyway, rageaholic father who who did get therapy eventually and all of that. But if I look at What do I know about his parents? Well, his dad, by all accounts, was kind of crazy. Kind of a raging maniac kind of guy. His mom was super nice. Always cool. Loved talking to her. Always open and a great listener. So let's stick with the father, because the father seemed to be a a point of uh, problem. Uh, I, I remember my dad had problems with both his parents. When we would go to visit them, he didn't want to stay long. I knew my great-grandparents very little on my grandmother's side, on my grandfather's side. I knew my great-grandmother because she lived to be like a million years old. (laughs) And uh, so my grandfather actually came over from Greece and, you know, had to live the life of changing one's name to... Um, fit in as an American, and you know all of that. All of that pressure on top of whatever other craziness. Now his mom, I didn't realize this until she passed away, and there was an article about her life. She was uh, war booty. She was like stolen in a war, and had to marry the soldier who, who stole her or something, and then somehow got away and came to America. You know this 
sort of traumatic life um, at a time when women are, you know, essentially to be seen and not heard, you know, when there's, I mean, you think there's any quality now? Imagine it from the old country and then coming over to America uh, way, way back when. So this was her experience, and it's no wonder she wasn't the nicest person in the world. Now, if we switch to my mom, what do I know about her childhood? I know that she was raised to be seen and not heard. I know that she was the only female sibling of three. I know she was the first in her family to go to college. I know that her parents were not supportive of that because you just don't do that. I know that she was raised in a uh, uber-conservative church where you don't even go to movies because, you know, the devil. You don't dance because, you know, the devil. And she ended up going to Gordon College and meeting my dad. Gordon College is a, uh, a religious school. My dad was to become a minister. He was very poetic, politically liberal, He was handsome and creative and all of that. And oh, by the way, her parents didn't particularly care for him. So he was perfect. And off they went to live their hippie dreams of doing great social work and working on behalf of social justice while ignoring the injustices between them and the screwed up nature of their personal lives until eventual separation and divorce. Is it any wonder I feared being these people? Did I really want to get into a relationship with a woman and risk becoming my dad? So you, you, you deconstruct yourself, and it leads to the family. And then you deconstruct your, your family and your parents, and you see where they came from. And, and suddenly, if you do this within yourself, you're left with, we're all in this together. I mean, if you just do it and you don't judge anything, you just really do it. Do it for yourself. It's like peeling away the layers of an onion. There's, there's no center. There's no center because through the ages, we're all screwed up. And we're all screwing each other up. And this is just what we are. This is, this is what we do. And once you see the dysfunction, and you completely understand the dysfunction... The dysfunction dissolves in you. It no longer applies. Because once you shed light on it, once you understand, that is clarity. And so you can no longer be confused because you're clear. You can't be clear if you judge it. You can't be clear if you judge yourself, your parents, even the child molester. I hate to say it. I mean, we get that that is wrong, right? We all get that. We get that. Not every action as a result of a bad parenting is, um, is okay. We know all of that going into the process of deconstructing ourselves. So we don't have to keep bringing it up. We can look at this through a different lens. The lens of why do human beings do this to each other? Why am I the result of this dysfunction? And eventually you get to that... This is what the mind is, at least the westernized mind. This is what we've, we've become. This is what we've done with ourselves. And it affects everybody. Um, so 
we're all in this, <laughs> when we're all in this together, you're no longer special. I'm no longer uh, special, which means that that I I don't um, excel any more than anyone else, and I and I certainly don't suck any more than anyone else. And it's not a rational conclusion that you come to that clears a, clears it all up. Because somebody could certainly explain this to you as I'm explaining it to you, and it's not going to affect your life. You have to do. You have to actually go through the motions and feel the emotions that you that you feel. So you're not judging, but you're definitely feeling your feelings, and you're 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 just taking a flashlight to these these feelings, which are barricades at this point, and you're searching through them, and you're looking for where is the light switch that dispels all of this darkness. And you realize there isn't one. And that realization is its own light. And now you are that. And now you don't have to answer what is love. You don't have to go through, is love jealousy? Is love hatred? Is love obsessiveness? Is love happiness? Fleeting moments of happiness between being angry. Uh, you don't have to do all of that because you realize that all of those definitions are dysfunctions. And what you are now is love. Because love isn't a thing that you talk about. Love isn't a thing at all. Love is not separate from you. It's not a quality put upon you or that you step in and out of. It either is, is you or is not you. And if you don't put in the work of deconstructing the self which is in the way of love, then how will you know if this is true? Will you accept it if you read it in a book? Will you just take the word of a stranger in your ear? This is a problem you can't study your way out of. It's beyond knowledge. In fact, knowledge gets in the way. I mean, clearly this must be communicated in order for you to even know there's a problem. But uh, beyond that, knowledge is in the way because... You are knowledge, and you are in the way. You are, as we talked about earlier, the love substitute, which, although it sounds like a really bad movie, well, I guess it kind of is, but it's the role you were born to play because you're a defense mechanism against love. And that defense mechanism will do anything to remain as it is, intact, including saying, I already am love. And being wide-eyed and starry-eyed and going on New Age retreats. You know, all that fun stuff. Claiming not to be judgmental as a judgment. We know those people, right? The writhing hostility beneath the smile. What's the story there? Well, you already know because it's all of our story. The reason that we can connect with each other and understand each other is because we are each other. We are each other when we're dysfunctional, and we are each other when we're whole and healthy. And you can't choose toward wholeness. You can only understand the unhealthy, the dysfunctional, the partial. And that understanding is what gives clarity. And then you, as defense mechanism, have dissolved. And what's there is wholeness. And wholeness is love. Whatever you do, don't take my word for it. Stop this podcast and ponder yourself within yourself 
and don't make it a social experiment. This is you alone with you. For many of us, that's the most frightening proposition of all. And yet by the end of it, you will have bridged that great chasm between loneliness and aloneness.